Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Almost a year after the 2016 presidential election, and many are still talking about how Republican Donald Trump defeated Democrat Hillary Clinton. That includes Trump winning Pennsylvania, a state that hadn't voted for a Republican for president since 1988. Several theories have been put out there, but there has been no solid research in Pennsylvania until now. Joining us to talk about that research is Burwood Yost. He's the director of the Center for Opinion Research and the Floyd Institute for Public Policy at Franklin and Marshall College and co-author of the 2016 Pennsylvania presidential and U.S. Senate elections, Breaking Pennsylvania's Electoral Habits. Burwood Yost, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, I know you're thinking, haven't we talked about this a lot uh, up until now? Yes, we have. But as I said, this is the first concrete data and research that we have in, here in Pennsylvania up until this point. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at org. Brett, let's talk about that to begin with, that this is the first hardcore research. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation. I mean, since the day after the election last year of, okay, why did Trump win? It was a bit of a surprise. Who went where as far as voting? But talk about why this is different. Well, Scott, uh, we just based this on a lot of different data sets that we spent some time analyzing. So we looked at uh, election data, registration data, um, actual vote choices. Uh, that was one set of it. And that data is relatively widely available. The other set of data that are here that are, I think, interesting and absolutely unique is all the polling data that we have. Um, prior to the election, we had been doing polls July, August, September, October preceding the election, uh, we had interviewed uh, over 3,000 Pennsylvania adults in those uh, 3,000 Pennsylvania voters in those uh, polls. After the election, we called them all back and we talked to almost all of them. We talked to more than three quarters of those people that we had talked to before the election. And that allowed us to ask some questions about how they actually ended up voting why they made the choices that they did, uh, and and what was driving and motivating their vote choices in both the Senate and the presidential races in Pennsylvania. So we were able to get into, create a data set that no one else has, uh, and spend some time thinking about what that data shows us. And you mentioned Senate, and we'll talk about that uh, during the program as well, because you did look at uh, Senator Toomey defeating uh, Katie McGinney uh, in last year's U.S. Senate races as well. So, okay, now you have this data. How can it be used? Well, I think, uh, as I mentioned, we uh, asked all of these different questions prior to the election, how they felt about both candidates, how they were intending to vote, uh, who was better on which issues, which issues were motivating them, um, if they you know, did they make when did they make up their mind? I mean, we we asked a host of these questions prior to Election Day. And after the election, we were able to go back and say, OK, you told us you were planning to vote for pre uh, for uh, President Trump or you were planning to vote for Secretary Clinton. Did you do that? And why not? Or if you were undecided, how did you end up voting? Did you actually vote or did you? you know, not vote the way you, you thought you were going to vote. So we were able to go back by repeatedly interviewing these folks just to understand how they actually ended up behaving and what was driving those behaviors. And I think that's really helpful and informative. We're, we're not making guesses about why people changed their mind or who changed their mind. They told us. One of the narratives that emerged again, day after the election, and you've heard many people repeat it over the past year, is that the polls were wrong. 
going into the presidential election that most of the polls, almost all of the polls, had Hillary Clinton with a lead over Donald Trump. And then the next day, it was a surprise to a lot of people like, okay, Trump won. The polls didn't say that. Right. What about that? Well, there's a lot going on there, and it depends what you're thinking about in terms of right and wrong. But let's let's parse this out into a couple of different pieces. One, if we look at the national vote and polls about the national vote, those were pretty much exactly right. They were showing that Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote by three or four points, and that's about what she ended up winning the popular vote by. So the national polls were, for the most part, accurate. Now, uh, let me just stop you there. Key word there is popular vote. Correct. Right. And that's the difference. And so since we have the electoral college system, you got to win state by state and accrue those electoral votes that way. And so some of the state polling wasn't exactly right. Um, And, you know, and some of the polling done in the states was much less frequent than we see nationally. So that led to some of the confusion. I think it's also the case that the polling aggregators, okay, there's there's a whole industry that takes polling data and crunches it all together and makes some judgments about how likely it is someone's going to win or lose the election. Most of the polling aggregators oversold the certainty of that polling data, right? That if you look very carefully at the data, ours included, um, you could see that there were some red flags that were going to lead to perhaps... Uh, a different outcome or maybe less certainty about the choice than than was being reported by these polling aggregators and the media. Let me just give you a, a couple of examples of those things. One we know for sure was that compared to previous elections, there were far more undecided voters going into the end of the poll. Right now, that's not. Is it just Pennsylvania or is it national? I think that was nationally, but our data certainly okay. showed that there was no doubt that there were more. Uh, undecided voters late in the election than we saw in, say, 2012, right? So that was one factor. The second factor that should have led us to believe there was a lot of uncertainty was that uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, neither of those candidates ever exceeded 50% in any of the polls that we did. So no one appeared to have a majority level of support. In part, that came because of the large number of third-party and undecided voters prior to the election. So that probably should have been a warning as well. So so you've got that uncertainty with the undecided. You've got the uncertainty around the fact that no candidate was ever getting to 50%. And the third thing that really should have raised red flags was the fact that there was a large portion of voters that didn't like either candidate, either major party candidate. Something like 14, 15 percent of voters had an unfavorable opinion of both Clinton and Trump. Compare that to the 2012 election. I think it was 5 percent. So those three factors were suggesting to us that there was a lot of uncertainty uh, in the election. And, and I don't think that uncertainty, that story was told. Um, everybody acted like the polls were pointing in one direction when there were enough sort of underlying things that should have been red flags that people just didn't pay attention to. Um, So, I mean, that's one of the issues. The other thing that's interesting, and we'll talk about the Franklin Marshall College poll. Um, We showed that Hillary Clinton had an advantage, as did uh, 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 Katie McGinney, um, but we were done polling two weeks before Election Day. Actually, most all of our polling was done prior to the Comey letter being released. This data that we're talking about today shows that people who were making up their mind in the last week of the election, they vote broke overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Uh, And so those late deciders, after a lot of the polling was done, went in that direction. So that's, you know, that's part of this. I mean, when we talk about were the polls right or wrong, well... We actually predicted Hillary's vote share at 48 percent. That's what she got. Um, We underestimated Trump's vote share. But if you look at the demographics, the way we predicted the number of college-educated voters or the number of young voters, that kind of 
all those estimates were right on. So uh, that question about were the polls right or wrong isn't an easy answer. That's interesting, though, that uh, you said that, uh, you know, that your last poll was two weeks beforehand. Just for background purposes, I know that most people are aware of this, but the Comey letter was that uh, uh, former FBI director John Comey said that uh, they were reopening an investigation into uh, Secretary Clinton's emails when she was secretary. And, um, you know, that that is one of the reasons she is pointed to. Mm-hmm. I have to say, one of many that she has pointed to Correct. that uh, was a reason why she lost the election. But you don't have polls, you don't have figures on this, but it would seem to indicate, since that was kind of like the October bombshell, uh, that that did have an impact here in Pennsylvania. Well, something did. Right. Now, right. that's a yeah, likely... Again, we have no polls showing that. Right. So. I mean, what our polls show is that in the last week of the election, there was a sizable movement uh, of people who, when they made up their mind, if they were undecided and they made up their mind in that last week or so, they went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Now, were they always thinking about going for Trump and just never saying that? Uh, was it the Comey letter? Was it something else? We didn't pinpoint that sort of information. I mean, we asked some open-ended questions, and we didn't get a clear response. It seemed like there were many potential things. Um, but there is no doubt from this data that there was a late movement of voters, and they moved in Trump's direction. And so, you know, one of the things that we see here is that Trump's victory really came about from people who, in pre-election polls, said, look, I'm not planning to vote for Trump or Clinton. They said they were voting for someone else or they were undecided. More of those voters voted for Trump in the end than voted for Clinton, and that made the difference for him. Okay, so let's go back to, as you said, that uh, there should have been some warning signs that— There were. Okay, that there were, but whether people recognized them or not. Correct. But yet it still was portrayed, at least here in Pennsylvania, but I think nationally too, that— Trump's victory was a surprise. Right, right. Well, I think that's true. Like, it can be a surprise. There, remember, we're talking with, uh, with any poll. We're talking about the likelihood of an event happening, not a certainty that it will happen. Right, and, and that's a good, it's a good time to say that a poll is a snapshot. It's not a prediction, correct? That, that's, well, it depends on how you do them. But, yes, the way we do them is we are just trying to show uh, the characteristics of the electorate at a given point in time. So, yeah, it's a snapshot. And so there are things that could change. And in fact, given all the spending and uh, discussion around elections, you might expect them to change over the course of uh, several months. But in the the days right after the election, um, many pollsters said, okay, we're going to have to look at our methodology here. And we did. But now, almost a year later, are you satisfied that your methodology was right? It was just that there were certain things that broke in the last few days. Complicated question. So I, you, you I do try that, to simplify them. Yes. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> let me let me say this: um, we used we did polling in Colorado, and we used the exact same methodology that we used here. And we polled the presidential race, the Senate race, and we polled a bunch of the. Uh, They have ballot initiatives. In that polling, using the same methodology as Pennsylvania, everything we predicted was right. I mean, Wait, you said predicted. Okay, that's the wrong Ah. word. You're right. You're right to call me on that, Scott. But I think the point is that that tells me that the polls are capable of capturing people's sentiment at a given time and that that sentiment didn't change between the time we did our polls and Election Day in Colorado. Okay. But in Pennsylvania, we did see changes. Something happened, whatever it may have been, that caused the estimates around Donald Trump's vote to change. And the same for Pat Toomey. We underestimated the Republican share of the vote. Um, So, you know, what was that? I don't know. Uh, I, I suspect the Comey letter had something to do with it. I suspect, you know, the real dissatisfaction with uh, both, you know, perhaps both candidates cause some people to to choose the out party. I think one of the things that we really have to remember that got understated here is that heading into 2016, most people who follow politics said, guess what? 
this is going to be a really close election, and the Republicans should have an advantage. That's what the the modelers were all saying. The people that look at this, they say, if you look at economic conditions, that's an advantage for the Republicans. If you look at sort of a fatigue with Democratic leadership, that's an advantage for the Republicans. So they had all of these things suggesting that Democrats uh, were in trouble. And I think the personality of Donald Trump clouded a lot of people's judgments in saying, well, those fundamentals don't apply anymore because we have a candidate who doesn't adhere to those kind of basic rules of politics. And I think in the end, that turned out not to be true, that in the end, people voted in a way that supported many of their... There were some changes, absolutely. There were some interesting things that went on in the electorate. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the the basic fundamentals around a, an election you know, proved to be pretty consistent in this election as they were in previous elections. We're going to talk about uh, the specifics in just a moment and ask the big question about whether Pennsylvania is changing politically. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Almost a year after the November 2016 election, probably the first time here in Pennsylvania that we have some hardcore research into uh, why Donald Trump won, why Pat Toomey won uh, here in Pennsylvania. Burwood Yost is our guest today. He's the director of the Center for Opinion Research and the Floyd Institute for Public Policy at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster and co-author of the 2016 Pennsylvania presidential and U.S. Senate elections, Breaking Pennsylvania's Electoral Habits. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Before we take some phone calls and emails, Burwood, I want to ask the big question here and then break down some of the specifics of uh, your findings. But has Pennsylvania changed politically? Uh, Yes, undoubtedly it has. Now, whether this change is um, simply a continuation of patterns that we've seen in the past you could probably make that argument. For a long time, the southeastern part of the state was a Republican stronghold, um, and that has become uh, less and less true. A moderate Republican stronghold. Right. And and in southwestern Pennsylvania, that was traditionally a Democratic stronghold. And, and um, But we have seen in the past, for instance, uh, among Reagan Democrats, people who voted for Ronald Reagan, although they were Democrats, that was common in the southwest. Um, so we we kind of saw that pattern reemerge with this election. So I think the state is undoubtedly changing um, politically as it will continue to change and evolve. But in some ways, these are sort of an extension of pat of changes that we've seen before, right? In so what way? so as I said, with you, you've got those uh, you had a propensity among some Democratic voters to vote. Republican candidates in this state, particularly in the Southwest, uh, that we saw in a kind of that sort of exploded this time around. But we saw that again. It's the same thing in the Southeast. Traditionally, you would expect Republicans to come out of the Southeast with an advantage. You know, many election cycles ago, you would have that stopped happening. And right now, you know, Trump didn't do as well in the Southeast, for instance, as did Pat Toomey. So, you know, these sort of habits that we've had over time uh, regionally uh, kind of were reinforced and in some ways even extended, uh, but they're not completely new. I guess that's what I mean. The state is changing. Sure. Uh, When 
you know, I read about the, the Southwest. Mm-hmm. The Southwest used to be a union stronghold. Correct. Uh, there were so many manufacturing jobs. I mean, we all think of steel in the southwestern part of the state. Manufacturing isn't that strong in southwestern Pennsylvania, or maybe not as strong as it used to be. Allegheny County, Pittsburgh, is no longer the steel capital of the country, of the world. Now it's a high-tech Eds and meds, uh, right. colleges, and uh, also uh, you know high tech jobs, uh, white collar jobs. But that's in Pittsburgh itself, in Allegheny it's, uh, County itself. So these southwestern Pennsylvania counties, like Westmoreland, Greene, Fayette, uh, Washington, all those counties seem like they're more West Virginia than Pennsylvania. I mean, I'm not saying that in a negative way. Sure. I'm saying that as that their voting patterns. The politics seem to align more with a conservative state like West Virginia than they do with as they used to. Right. Well, I I think you're right. And when we look at the data in this paper, we do see and if I were going to boil our findings down to sort of one takeaway, it has to do with these changing patterns in registration and turnout and vote choice regionally in the state. Okay, so in our paper, we pull out a table where we look at three southwest PA counties, Beaver, Cambria, and Westmoreland. And we look at the turnout in 2012 versus 2016. That turnout went up in those counties, right? Um, But the vote share in those counties for the Democrat went way down. So Obama, for instance, won about 45 percent of the vote in Beaver County. That went to about 38% for Clinton. In Cambria County, it went from 40% for for Obama to 30% for Clinton. And in Westmoreland County, it went from about 37% for Obama to 32% for for Clinton. So the, the West, these southwestern counties, really did surge for the Republican candidate. They gave, their turnout went up compared to 2012, and their vote share for Democrats went down. And in fact, in some of these places, there were more votes for the Republican candidate than there were registered Republicans, right? So that is really part of the big story here, these regional patterns in vote vote choice, in turnout and in how they voted. Um, Because if you look at that, Across the state, we saw that pattern in these rural areas. Then you look at the Democratic areas where you would expect Clinton to do well. And I pull out Center County, um, around State College, and Philadelphia. In those two counties, turnout stayed the same or actually went down compared to 2012, um, while Hillary Clinton's vote share stayed about the same. And that's that's the story of the election, Scott, that you had a surge— uh, and an overperformance for Republican candidates, particularly in the Southwest, somewhat in the Northeast. And in these other counties where you would expect Democrats to do well, there was no surge in turnout. And her vote share, uh, Secretary Clinton, stayed about the same or went down compared to Obama's. I just, I just want to clarify that because I thought that uh, Clinton had more votes in Philadelphia and Allegheny counties than uh, Obama did in 2012. If you look at the vote share, that's uh, not the case. Oh, it's not. Okay. Right. Is it accurate to say that southwestern Pennsylvania delivered Pennsylvania for Trump? Yes, okay. I think it is. I think it is. Now, we can. the paper also explores what might be some of the reasons for that. But if you think about one takeaway, that really is it, that we had these regional changes in voting habits that stirred up the final outcome. And make no mistake that— what those voters were voting for Trump uh, in that southwestern part of the state, but they provided enough extra voters to also drag Pat Toomey across the finish line as well. Uh, not enough is said about how we could use the word masterful from a political sense, um, how masterfully Pat Toomey ran his campaign. He was able to thread a really difficult needle uh, by not alienating voters who wanted to support Trump. Uh, but at the same time, not alienating voters in the Southeast who might not vote for Trump. And one of the, the things that's interesting, if you compare the Senate and the presidential race, is that Toomey outperformed Trump in the southeastern part of the state. Where the biggest population is, too. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And also, with looking at polls there, Katie McGinty 
led in all the polls up until that point, too. So actually, Trump had coattails. He did. He did. There's no doubt about it. And I think uh, if you would talk to the, the, the Toomey campaign staff, they'd probably tell you they knew that. That's why he did not endorse uh, Donald Trump until late in Election Day. Well, he actually just said he voted for him. Right. That's really right. He didn't even him. endorse him. Yeah. So, I mean, he really had uh, a thin, tightrope to walk, and he walked it effectively. And by holding on to those southeastern uh, voters, uh, he was able to, to, um, to, to be victorious, right? He wouldn't have done that without them, but also the fact that Trump was able to get this surge, and many of those voters also you know, we, we saw about 10 percent of voters split their ticket between the Senate and the presidential race in Pennsylvania. That's another thing this paper looks at. So um, so there were some differences there. And the, I think what's really interesting, too, is the makeup of the the characteristics of people who voted for Trump versus Toomey. Toomey's supporters were a much more traditionally Republican sort of voter, whereas Trump's were not. We saw a huge difference by uh, educational attainment among Trump voters, right? You, you've heard this story before, right? The non-college educated whites were huge Trump supporters, no doubt about that. We didn't see those educational differences in uh, Toomey's support, right? So a diff, slightly different coalition. So one of the things that uh, sticks out to me is that— uh, and this has been you know, discussed a lot since last Election Day, is that Democratic candidates do well in cities, in urban areas. They have high registration advantages in most of them. But even when it comes to Election Day and people going out and voting, the Democrats do well in urban areas. Republicans do well in rural areas. Now, is that, I mean, can we conclude from what you have here in Pennsylvania that that is the case here in Pennsylvania. Oh, that was the case, undoubtedly. The urban centers, and it's been that way for a while, right? I mean, you can win uh, 11 or 12 counties in Pennsylvania and and win if you're a Democrat, Oh, yeah. Right? Well, well, Ed Rendell won seven yes. his first uh, campaign against Bob Casey. Correct. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- those kinds of things uh, make a difference. We've seen the urban-rural divide in this state for a long time. I don't think we've ever seen, though, the pronounced regional differences that we saw this time. I mean, there was always, as I said, Beaver County. You know, Obama got 45 percent of the vote in, uh, you know, uh, 2012 Clinton got less than 40 percent. Um, you know, th- that those those are big changes as as, as those um, those regional differences, the, those margins eroded. And that's really the story of what happened here in that race. An email here from John says, I don't know whether Pennsylvania has changed, but last November when I was at my polling place voting at the same location for 18 years, I sensed an atmosphere and attitude I had never seen before. In the past, I noticed a fairly long line of voters waiting to cast their ballots and a fair amount of chit-chat. Not this time. The line was out the door and the voters were of one mind. Almost robotic, steely-eyed, no small talk of any kind. It appeared that they were on a mission and nothing was going to get in their way of that mission. It was surreal. Now, I wonder whether those were Trump voters or Clinton voters. I guess where where was he from? Did he tell us? <laughs> he doesn't say, no. So, you know, it's a... I like his observation. Maybe I wouldn't use exactly the same wording, but um, I saw that in my polling place. I, I mean, I don't live in an urban area. I live in a rural area. Um, and I think he captured pretty well. Uh, I, I got there early. There was a long line, heavy turnout. Um, people seemed very clear and, and, and driven, you know, I might say. And I think that gets to another part of this story, which we're continuing to follow up on. And it, ha- it, it has to do with this notion of place and how where we live shapes what we think and, and what we do, and particularly in this instance, how we vote. There were a lot of stories leading up to Election Day that talked about let's call it the politics of resentment. There was a scholarly book written that, uh, with that title where you basically had voters in small towns and, and rural areas who felt that economically they were being left behind and socially their perspectives were not being valued and politically they were being ignored. Politics of resentment. Um, and that, I think, we saw play out in Pennsylvania, this notion of how place shapes our vote choice. And since the election, we've done some research on place and asked 
people to describe the place where they live. And that ends up being a better predictor of how counties voted than does the party or the ideology of that county. So this notion of place, which we're going to continue to explore, really does hold some key, at least at the present time, in helping us understand how people are choosing and making choices about their their um, uh, votes. Is that different than the past? Well, I suspect it's more pronounced than the past. We don't have data that I can point to that says, boy, you know, the, the differences regionally are bigger than they ever were. And And when we put this scale together, we were basically trying to think of it in terms of vibrancy and modernity, you know, what makes do you describe your place as thriving, as as modern, all those kinds of characteristics, or on the other end, do you describe them as dying and, and old-fashioned and, you know, that sort of thing, and you see that there are these big regional differences between uh, people who supported Trump and who didn't, and that makes their choice. I know many people um, expressed to me that uh, maybe a vote for Trump didn't seem rational, but it absolutely is rational when you have a voter who sees their community um, not thriving and who sees that their perspectives aren't being valued and that they are politically left behind. It, it, it's a rational choice if you're concerned about where you live. Now, there's a lot of other elements that can be part of that Trump support. You know, I'm a, a longtime Republican, for instance. Maybe that, that's why I voted for him. I, Hillary wasn't a good option. Maybe that's, you know, there's lots of reasons. But I think if you focus on this idea of place, um, it does give us something to start thinking about a little bit more and say, you know, that that makes sense. Mm. Let's take a call from Daphne in Camp Hill. Daphne, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I think the, <clears throat> the, the voters need to become more sophisticated. You can't just vote for somebody because he promises you that the, the coal mines are going to come back and we're going to make America great again. I mean, the man was, even before he became a president, a lot of us could see that he was not the kind of personality that would be, you know, good for that kind of a job. And another thing that I, um, I'm upset about, and I hope we change it, is the, uh, uh, what is it called, the Electoral College. Because, you know, by the time people in, in California and Hawaii voted, they must want not vote. Mm. Because their votes don't count no matter what. Well, the, California. They do that, you mm. know, and... That is such an ancient thing. We are more educated now, not like the farmers in the 1700s. Mm. We need to get rid of that program. All right. Thank you very much, Rikos. She brings up a couple points there. Uh, and this leads right into a conversation about issues. But the point she was making about uh, Donald Trump being an unusual kind of candidate. Yes. I mean, in, in previous years, and, uh, you know, just personally, I thought very often last year that how is this guy surviving as a candidate with the controversies that surrounded him, that just one of them maybe uh, would have been enough to sink any other candidate in the in the past. But yet, it's almost like his support got stronger. That voters were willing to look the other way because there were there were things that Trump represented that they supported. Talk about that. What are those issues that? They looked at Donald Trump and said, this is why I think he's a better candidate than Hillary Clinton. Well, I, we started talking about the election fundamentals, right? And uh, people who watch this stuff closely knew that there were economic issues that were going to drive voters' choices. And that that wasn't um, the economic growth evident in the United States was favorable for the Republicans. It wasn't high enough to make it a, a slam dunk for the Democrats. So I think... That economic factor and the factor that you had fatigue with Democratic leadership after two full terms, um, that made it possible for a non-traditional candidate to uh, be successful because people were willing to search for an, an alternative. The other factor that goes into this, Scott, is you know the unpopularity of both Candidates. Yeah, can I just add something here? Because th this blew me away. Y your poll showed that uh, at one point, and it pretty much ended up here, that Trump had an unfavorable or a favorability rating of minus 29, mm -hmm. where Clinton had minus 2. So both candidates were unpopular, but 
a 27-point difference, and he still wins the state. That's amazing. It, it was un, probably unprecedented. I mean, normally, when, when we've looked back at past polls, uh, normally the candidate that has a negative rating is going to lose, right, a negative favorability rating. Um, in this instance, we had both candidates with negative favorability ratings. And as I said, 16% of voters felt unfavorably about both candidates, so, you know, that factored into the decisions that people made. I mean, our caller talked about voters being more sophisticated. And, you know, sure, I'd like voters to certainly be sophisticated about their choices. But if you're using sort of the things that you see in your everyday life about um, the direction that the country's headed, it, it does make sense if you think about um, you know, the the place-based issues. If your local area economically isn't thriving, um, if you are feeling socially uh, or culturally you know, that your culture is ignored or that your, you know, your, your political needs are ignored, you're going to vote for change and you're going to take a flyer. I think that's one of the things people don't, we haven't talked a lot about. Hillary Clinton was basically the de facto incumbent. She was so well-known. Um, people thought they knew they were, what they were getting from her. And the fundamentals told us that there were a lot of people that wouldn't be happy about continuing the status quo. And I think many of those people said, hey, let's take, you know, let, let's take a flyer. Let's, let's give this uh, change a chance because we need change. And that's actually something that's very clear in our paper. Change was really what was driving a lot of this stuff. People felt that there was a need for change. They weren't satisfied with the direction of the country. Uh, they weren't satisfied with performance of the, pres the existing president, President Obama. And that was an indicator of vote choice. Those people voted for Trump. There were a lot of other people, a good percentage actually, that voted for Trump because he wasn't a traditional politician. Correct. I just personally heard so many people uh, who voted for Trump who said that I like it that, okay, now they would say not politically correct, but I like it that he criticized the media. I like it that he would take on the people who disagree with him. And, again, it seemed as though they focused on that aspect of it. Yes. Like, and didn't even worry about the issue. It was just that I like his personality. He's different. Right. No, I think there's no doubt that people were, were willing to, uh, they were looking for someone to shake up the status quo. And they thought he was the best candidate to do it. And remember, he didn't win in a landslide. No, he, he won by close. less than 50,000 votes out of, what, six million casts, something like that. So, I mean, it was an incredibly closely contested race. I think a more traditional Republican probably would have won by a larger margin, given the fundamentals that we expect here. But I, you know. I, I think that there were a lot of people who wanted to see some change. Uh, and I can remember talking to a number of people who who voted for, for Trump who, you know, expressed just that feeling. We need a change and we're willing to try this guy. And that's one of the questions moving forward that we raise in our paper. Um, and I should make sure that I say something about my co-authors here, right? Oh. Um, yeah, we, don't leave them behind. Yeah, yeah. We, we've got a whole group of people at Franklin and Marshall that work on this stuff. So uh, my co-authors, Jackie Redmond and Scotty Thompson, were, you know, helped pull all this day together. It's quite an endeavor to collect data from 3,000 people over the course of five or six months. So, you know, I want to make sure that, that, that they get the credit where it's due. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We were talking about last year's election, first hardcore research into Donald Trump and uh, Pat Toomey winning here in Pennsylvania. Bit of a surprise. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. And on Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's go to Katie. Katie, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Thank Hi. you for having me. Yes, thank you. I was just wondering if anybody's ever thought or talked about or if there's any um, studies in the works pertaining to the fact that the American people, Pennsylvanians, feel disenfranchised and hopeless because of the corrupt view of Washington and, and politicians in general, and maybe that's what allowed or even drove a person of Trump's character to 
to be nominated and, and win. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for your call. And this kind of goes along with what you were saying earlier, that if someone answered the question, yes, that they felt the the country was going in the wrong direction, that they overwhelmingly voted for Trump. Would you agree with oh, yeah, answering her question? There is no doubt about it that, that this satisfaction and the desire for change motivated many voters. That, that was an independent factor that contributed to vote choice, and those voters were more likely to vote for Trump. So does Washington... Pay heed to that. I mean, does what Donald Trump went into Washington saying, I'm going to drain the swamp. Now, you know, almost a year later after the election, there's still a lot of swamp to drain. But uh, does anyone in Washington look at this and say, you know, the voters were pretty upset with the direction of this country. Maybe we may need to make some make some fundamental changes or is it status quo? Uh, well, I think the. The talk has been the former, but the action has been the latter, right? I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's without without a doubt, the polit- politicians understand that there's a disaffection. Um, I don't think candidates on either party quite know how to deal with that, right? I don't think we've seen, you know, from the Democrats, have we seen a real change in how they're going about? Uh, attracting these voters? Have they really even said, you know, how are we going to get these disaffected voters back? Are they, they, they were our voters, many of them. What, what are we going to do about them? Um, should we even try to get them back? Right. Well, so, and then can I interrupt for just a second? I mean, there are Democrats who have criticized the party, their own party, saying, you know, we can't win elections just based on criticizing Donald Trump. Right. Right, right. So, I mean, I, th- I think these are all uh, factors. The politicians are aware of this stuff. I don't know if they know what to do with it yet, right? How do we translate this into a program and a message? I mean, one thing that your, your previous caller alluded to, I mean, Donald Trump had a very clear message that signaled a direction that he wanted to go. I mean, you can quibble with the details and how well thought out. I mean, Hillary Clinton had detailed policy papers, you know, all that stuff. There was a real difference in that a simple, direct message about what he was going to try to accomplish. um, And it really captured the desire for some people to shake things up. I mean, that's really what he did. And now there were a lot of layers to that we could unravel. But but I think his campaign slogan and his salesmanship were able to sell that. Uh, I think uh, the Clinton campaign was far less effective in some ways because it was um, it just had many different policies and there was not one thread you could pull out of it. And that's that's the thing about voting. There's so much you could potentially vote on. You have to sort of have a, a, a theme to understand uh, a narrative to that captures the, the candidate's essence. And, uh, you know, I think Trump did a good job of communicating that. Uh, I think that w- they were less successful on the other side. Let's take another call from Philip in Harrisburg. Philip, you're on the air. Howdy. Hi. Uh, this is actually related to that most recent question, or sort of ties into it. Given that the 2008 election and now this most recent election were very heavily influenced on the promise of change, do you think there's anything that can be done to help sort of redirect the focus on being just something new and something fresh in government? and actually be focused on the issues as opposed to just the illusion or the idea of change. Thank you very much for your call. (laughs) Well, I think it's as I said before, policies uh, and specific policies can get uh, pretty mind-numbing, right? The details of policy are are often hard to convey. So I think, you know, politicians will continue to campaign with, you know, broad ideas about, um, you know, that, that sort of, and capture capture their their perspectives and what they want to accomplish. Many of them will fill that in with details on their website, but most voters uh, are not necessarily interested in that level of detail. They're interested in certain characteristics and a direction that they want to want to see politicians go. I'm talking about the executive here primarily, uh, president and governors and things like that. So, you know, I I I don't see the way that candidates campaign changing a whole lot um, because, you know, they, there's a there's an approach, there's a way of doing it. Yeah, but one thing you point out in, in the research is that Trump did not campaign in a traditional manner in that he 
use social media and continues to use social media. That's correct. Rather than spending tons of money on television advertising. That, there's no doubt about it. And that is a a change of tactic, but it's still strategically you are doing the same sorts of things. You're expressing a, themat, a theme for your campaign. Um, you're being consistent in what you're talking about. Um, at, at least at the campaign level, you know, there was that, that theme that he could always refer back to. And that's what good campaigns do. They build momentum. They have uh, a touchstone that they can always return to to motivate voters and to understand and to make voters understand that they're on their side. Uh, change is going to be something that politicians always use. That's, you know, you've got to, why would someone vote for you if you're not going to change anything? <laughs> That's right. right? That, first, that first candidate says, you know what, I'm going to do the status quo. Yeah, things are going to be, pre- <laughs> they're, they're all pretty good. So vote for me so nothing will happen. Although you do have some candidates, says, I, like Hillary Clinton, for example, to some degree said, I want to continue some of the policies yes. of the Obama administration. Right, right. But that really wasn't a campaign theme. That's correct. All right, let's go to Gene in Lebanon. Gene, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Uh, I'm an old white grandma, and I've made some observations um, about this um, person who is holding the presidency. I think he reached a lot of people with racism. He, uh, his hate speech and, um, you know, when you talked about the people who were at the voting booth, I'm not saying everybody who voted for him. I'm sure, you know, but I'm I think there is a portion of the population who were driven to to vote for him because of his policy and his rhetoric, and um, it's just so very sad. Now, when you say racism, what in particular? I mean, are you talking about well, like Mexican I think immigrants? That some people reacted that we had a black man in the uh, presidency for eight years. Uh, if you if you look at the policies that are going on now, it's trying to undo everything that uh, President Obama had done. And um, I don't know, it just seems like there's a certain part of the population that has just a, a knee-jerk reaction, you know, make America great again, all these, po- the, just the whole rhetoric of the hate speech He's reached a certain part of the population. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Now, Burwood, obviously you did not ask, uh, you know, in a poll uh, whether you're voting because of racial reasons. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was an underlying message there in in many people's minds uh, during the Trump campaign, especially, especially when it came to immigration. Right. Um, you know, African-Americans, okay, yeah, once you were talking about, uh, like, Ferguson and mm-hmm. uh, p- police brut- brutality and that kind of thing. But are there people out there that expressed a view or supported Trump because of these reasons? So there, I mean, you can point to some research that su- suggested that um, that was a motivating factor for some. We didn't explore that deeply, and with our data, we, um, you know, we, the the biggest differences we saw were sort of um, class based differences, you know, and and so I think for many people they were voting for Trump uh, because they saw it as an opportunity for change. That's what our data suggests. Now, were there threads and elements and statements that had that racist undertone? Uh, undoubtedly. And were some people attracted to the candidate because of that? Undoubtedly. But I don't I don't know how many from how many people that was the main reason. And also just to you know put uh, numbers out there, uh, Hillary Clinton won African-American vote overwhelmingly, maybe a bigger margin than any other candidate in history. So I had a quick question here from a, a, a someone who called in Linda. I want to know uh, what impact third-party candidates had, because earlier when you said that uh, voters going in did not like really like either candidate, what about third-party candidates? Did they benefit? Yeah, uh, well, who benefited from the third party? I mean, the, the, the third-party performance was uh, good, and arguably you could suggest that that was a, a major reason for Trump's victory. At the end of the day, um, you know, you had people who voted for neither candidate um, 
and, and you know, so the third party candidacy, it looked like, um, you know, that took some votes away from from Clinton mm-hmm. in the end. And when you're talking about forty five thousand vote difference. Right. Right. Could be the difference. everything matters. Joel is in Harrisburg. Joel, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, just one observation <clears throat> concerning the Comey letter. Um, that came out of the first one that he was investigating. Uh, Wiener's computer was about 11 days, I think, before the election. Five or six days before, Wednesday or Thursday, I went in to get some yard signs at, uh, at Hillary's uh, office. I asked the person at the front desk, how's Hillary doing? She said she is tanking in the Philadelphia suburbs. This is five or six days before the election. And uh, it was before Comey reversed himself and said, oops, I made a mistake. And um, Hillary had been up, you recall, in Pennsylvania. I think the observations here that nationally it may not have made a difference to Comey letter, but in Pennsylvania, Hillary was up by some polls 12 points mm-hmm. uh, in the weeks before the election. And and she lost the state. Uh, so I think that... That uh, made a big difference. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call. Yeah. We did kind of touch on this. Yeah. There, well, if you look at the poll averages, which is something that we do in the in the paper, um, you can see that uh, Clinton had a a large advantage. But there is no doubt that those trend lines curved and started to approach each other as the election got near. And the the point where that happens, that inflection point, is right around the time of the Comey letter. So uh, I don't think there's any doubt that that had some uh, impact. I mean, again, we're talking about an election decided by less than 50,000 votes. All of these things matter. So, Broward, we only have about 30 seconds left. What would you want our audience, those who read this, to take away? Um, well, you know, I think the ultimately what happened in the election uh, in, in 2016 was that counties with more working class voters turned out in greater numbers and gave less support to Democratic candidates than in prior elections, while the areas that should have really been supportive of the Democrats, had lower turnout, and offered little change in their support for the Democrats. That's what this comes down to. Erwin Yost is the director of the Center for Opinion Research and the Floyd Institute for Public Policy at Franklin and Marshall College. Burwood, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. Kind of a Science Friday on tomorrow's program. We talk about gravitational pull in space and collision of two stars. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine.